this morning, we're going to continue our study through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so would you please open your Bibles in Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 1, uh, which can be found on page 876 that, uh, in the Bibles that are under the seats in front of you. <clears throat> Again, uh, that's Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 6 on page 876. This will be our passage of study for this morning. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 6 says this, And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, before we begin, would you please bow your heads with me as we open our time in a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you for this morning, and we do, as we have just sung, ask you, Lord, that you would speak that you would speak to us through your holy word, by the power of your spirit, that you would help us to remember, to understand, to know all the things that Jesus has taught to us and continues to teach us. By your spirit, may you glorify Jesus Christ in our hearts, in this world. And would you continue to proclaim him to us so that we might know you better that we might truly be salt and light in this world, Lord. Help us through this preaching of your word. Speak to us, we ask. We love you so much, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we come to chapter 17 this morning uh, in the book of Luke, it's helpful to know that after, after all the chapters leading up uh, to this time, Luke has been painting a very dark uh, and rather depressing picture of the Pharisees, the Pharisees who were the Jewish leaders of that time. The Pharisees were prideful. They were greedy. They were hypocritical. They were self-righteous. And they were relying upon their obedience to the Jewish law and their man-made religious works to try to earn their way into the kingdom of God. And they were leading God's people astray. And I think Luke wants us to have the Pharisees in mind as we come to chapter 17, and Jesus turns his attention away from the Pharisees, and now he turns his attention to his disciples. Look again at, verse, at chapter 17, starting in verse 1. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. 
Pay attention to yourselves. Jesus' attention is now on his disciples, and he's giving them a pretty severe warning. He's telling them to beware. Pay attention to yourselves. Do not cause even one of these little ones of mine to sin. The phrase temptations to sin comes from the Greek word skandalon, which can also be rendered stumbling block or snare. So in effect, Jesus is saying, do not place stumbling blocks in front of my people. And Jesus knows, and you know, that in a fallen, sinful world, stumbling blocks to our faith are all around us. They're everywhere, whether it's on the television or through the internet, our entertainment industry, our political and education systems. It seems like from every angle, stumbling blocks to our faith are sure to come. But as bad as the stumbling blocks are, Jesus reserves his worst condemnation for the one through whom the stumbling blocks come. He says it is better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, a millstone was a very huge and heavy stone that was used to crush grain. In some cases, it could weigh thousands and thousands of pounds. And so this image of a millstone hung around the neck and then being cast into the sea, that's an image of absolute destruction. There is no chance of survival. And if this is the better fate than that which awaits one who causes one of Jesus' little ones to stumble, then truly, woe to those who would cause a stumbling block in front of his disciples. This is very, very serious stuff here, folks. Now, in the context of our passage, it's easy to assume that Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, right? I mean, the Pharisees were the ones who were obviously leading the people astray. And last week in Jeff's sermon from Luke chapter 16, didn't we see that it was the Pharisees and people just like them who were going to end up in hell? And so it's easy to point our fingers at the Pharisees and say, yeah, don't, don't be like them. But notice that in our passage this morning, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's directing this severe millstone warning at them. He's warning his disciples, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to what you are teaching and pay attention to how you are living because you don't have to be as obviously evil as a Pharisee to cause your brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble and to sin. We can all, we can all be guilty of doing this. And so we all need to pay attention. We all need to take Jesus' warning to heart. Now, how might we become stumbling blocks to people today? Well, I'm sure there are a multitude of ways, but this morning I'm just going to touch on two. First, faulty teaching that leads God's people astray. And second, proud pharisaical hearts that cannot sympathize with a weaker brother or sister and thereby cause them to stumble in sin. 
Let's look at these one at a time. First, faulty teaching. Now, in many of the Apostle Paul's letters written to the early church, we see him dealing with the problem of false teachers. This was a problem that was rampant in the early church, and it continues to this day. Wicked people who are teaching and preaching a false gospel that is leading people astray. Paul goes so far as to call these false teachers cursed. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, If anyone, even if it is an angel from heaven, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Teaching the word of God is a very serious thing. And this is a warning to us as pastors and teachers not to cause even one of God's people to be led astray through bad teaching. As the book of James says in chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so we know. Pastor Dan knows. I know. Jeff knows. George knows. Josh knows. We know that what we share from the pulpit must be true according to the word of God so as not to become a stumbling block to a person's faith. But just as important as it is for the teacher to know this, you all, the listeners, need to know this as well. Again, in the letter to the, to the Galatian church, after Paul curses the false teachers in chapter 1, he later calls out the entire Galatian church in chapter 3, and he calls them foolish Galatians. Why? Because they had allowed themselves to be led astray, bewitched by the false teachers. And so there's a responsibility that all of us share to not allow false teaching to lead God's little ones astray. We need to be vigilant and discerning about what is being preached from our pulpits. You need to expect that it is God's word that is being taught, and you need to be prepared to seek this out. Because if you ever find yourself in a situation where you need to go to a different church, if you move away from Hawaii Kai, or if your child is going away to school and needs to find a good church, make sure that first and foremost that church preaches the word of God and that what is being shared from the pulpit is true according to Scripture. Listen to their sermons online. This should be your highest priority when looking for a church. Not their facilities, not their children's or youth program, not their singles or college ministry, not the music. The pulpit is paramount because the Word of God is paramount. We all need to be like the first century Berean church who received the Apostle Paul's teaching with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. Now, if they are fact-checking the Apostle Paul, how much more does a person like me need to be checked? But the only way that you can do this with discernment is that you yourselves need to be students of God's Word 
and take seriously Paul's exhortation in 2 Timothy 2 to be a person, a workman who can rightly handle the word of truth. Brothers and sisters, this warning is not just for pastors and Bible study leaders. This warning is for all of us. Parents, this warning is for you. Make sure God's children, your children, are not led astray by faulty teaching. And so the encouragement is to study and know the word of God. But it's not just false teaching that can cause Jesus' little ones to sin. We can also, with very subtle, very veiled, pharisaical, prideful hearts, cause our brothers and sisters to stumble. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In this chapter, Paul is warning Christians not to cause a weaker brother to stumble by eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, the mature, wise Christian knows that idols are are really nothing. They know that there is only one God and that an idol is just an inanimate piece of wood or metal. And so that this big, juicy, fat filet mignon that came from a cow that was sacrificed to the idol, well, who cares? Let's eat. To the mature Christian, the idol means nothing. And so here is this delicious piece of meat. Let's eat it before it gets cold. But for the young Christian, who perhaps just recently was involved in idolatry, when he sees you eating and he doesn't have the same knowledge and maturity as you, it's going to make him stumble. So even though you as a Christian may have every right to eat this meat, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, Sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Brothers and sisters, there is a way that we can use our freedom in Christ, the knowledge that we have as mature Christians to cause our younger, weaker brothers and sisters to stumble. And what we're talking about here is preference, eating meat or not eating meat, drinking alcohol or not drinking alcohol, smoking cigars or not smoking cigars, wearing this bathing suit or that bathing suit. And yes, anything can become sinful when taken to the extreme. But what we're talking about here is being willing to make sacrifices and giving up our preferences so that we don't cause our weaker brothers and sisters to stumble. That is the issue. We cannot simply base what we do on whether or not this is a right decision for me. I am free to do this. I have a right to do this. Sure you do, but Jesus warns us that we need to also consider whether or not my actions are going to cause 
my brother or sister to sin. We need to love our brothers and sisters in Christ more than we love our rights to do what we know and believe is okay to do. We need to be people who build each other up in love rather than expect that everyone should be as knowledgeable and free as we are. As Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We need to be people who guard and protect each other even if it comes at a cost of giving up our preferences. But this is not an easy thing to do because it means sacrifice. I mean, think about it. never eating meat again. That is hard to do. But as a follower of Christ, you and I are called to live differently from the rest of the world. Unlike the arrogant, self-righteous, self-justified, prideful Pharisees who expected everyone to be like them and act like them, Jesus is calling his disciples to be humble and to think about others as more important than ourselves. And so it is with this humble attitude that we determine not to become stumbling blocks, even if it comes at a cost to ourselves. And if you think that's hard to do, wait until we get to the next verse. Look again at verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, if you thought that giving up your preferences for the sake of a weaker brother or sister was difficult, the verses that I just read to you, well, these are going to be downright impossible to obey. For not only is Jesus commanding us to forgive once, but we are to forgive and 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 forgive. In other words, as long as our brother comes to us and says, I repent, we must Keep on forgiving. Now, what in the world? If someone keeps doing the same sin against you over and over again and keeps saying, sorry, I repent, at some point, probably after the second offense, third, if I'm being especially gracious, I'm going to say, forget it. You're not sorry. What do you think I am, a fool? But look at what Jesus says. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Well, before we dig into this further, I want you to look carefully at these verses and notice that rather than taking this person's sin lightly, Jesus is calling us to take sin very seriously. When our brother, a fellow believer, sins, Jesus says we are not to just look away, sweep it under the rug and pretend that it didn't happen. No, we are to take sin seriously. We learn from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when a member of the Corinthian church was actually sleeping with his stepmom and the church did nothing. We learn from this church how easy it is for well-meaning Christian people to turn a blind eye to sin 
And in the case of the Corinthians, they redefined their apathy towards sin and called it maybe something like tolerance, which they saw as a virtue. They were bragging about it. And so Paul rebuked them for this. Whether it's sweeping sin under the rug or redefining sin as less serious, which our society is doing all over the place, either way, it is becoming easier and easier for even Christians to not take sin seriously. And to this, Jesus says, no, beware. Don't do this. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, what does it mean to rebuke? The word for rebuke means to warn somebody in order to put a stop to an action. Paul tells us in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And so you see the purpose of rebuke is not to humiliate, it's not to destroy, it's not to drive the sinner away, but its purpose, its end, is restoration. The end goal of all of our rebuke and forgiveness is always restoration. It's not punishment. It's so that the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, his church can be restored Jesus wants his church to be one unified body. In fact, listen to what Jesus prays the day before he was crucified in what many people call the high priestly prayer in John 17. Before he goes to the cross, he prays this. Father, keep them, his disciples, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The oneness, the unity of Jesus' body, the church, is what Jesus prayed for just before his death. Now, why was this so important to Jesus? Well, we heard it just now in his prayer. So that the world would believe. The way that we forgive each other, the way that we are unified together, the way that we love each other, this is how all the people in the world are going to know that we are disciples of Christ. And they will see him, our Lord, as the reason for our unity. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, take sin seriously. And if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, in spite of all that we just said about the unity of the body of Christ, there may be still some, myself included, who, when reading this, will still have doubts and objections to Jesus' words here. I mean, isn't this sort of naive and even kind of ridiculous to keep forgiving someone over and over again, even though they keep repeating the same sin over and over again? 
Yes, it is. But isn't that the point? The gospel tells us that God did something that to the world seems naive and ridiculous by sending his own son into the world to go to the cross to bear our sins upon himself and then to die. Jesus didn't go to the cross and die for our sins because we deserved it or because we were so righteous or that we learned our lesson and now we can be forgiven. He did this, Romans 5 tells us, while we were still sinners. He did this because he loves us unconditionally. We are forgiven not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. We are forgiven not because we earned it, but because of God's grace. We are forgiven and we are welcomed into the God's family, not by our good behavior. We enter into the family of God only by his grace through our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And as ridiculous as this may seem to the rest of the world, we as Christians know and believe with all of our hearts that this is what our Heavenly Father has done for us because He loves us. And now, as a member of God's family, He calls you and He calls me to forgive. This is how we do it in our family. We forgive those who sin against us. Not just once, not just twice, not just three times. We forgive over and over and over again. Why? Because we have been forgiven. And we know what it's like to not deserve forgiveness. We know what it's like to be lost and dead in our trespasses and sins. But by grace and mercy, we also know what it's like to be forgiven, to be given a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance, and on and on and on. How many of you have sinned once and then learned your lesson and never sinned that way again? I don't think that that's how it actually works. I think all of us are guilty as repeat offenders. We sin, we repent, and God forgives. How many times in a day do you hope that God will forgive you? Seven times? More? I think all of us have experienced firsthand the ongoing and continuous heart of forgiveness from our Heavenly Father. And he now calls us to have that same heart. But can we even do this? Can we forgive over and over again, especially someone who has hurt us deeply over and over again? 
Well, if you're asking this question this morning, you are not alone. Jesus' own disciples understood the impossibility of what their Lord was asking them to do. And so they cry out to the Lord. Look at verse 5. The apostle Paul said to the apostle, not the apostle Paul, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith, Lord. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The apostles knew that the only way that they could obey Jesus' command to forgive was by faith. Now, commentator Philip Ryken, he tells the story of a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf. Mr. Volf had just given a public lecture on Christian forgiveness. And at its conclusion, someone stood up and asked the question, but can you embrace the Chetnik? To understand the question, Mr. Volf gives this explanation. It was the winter of 1993. For months, the notorious Serbian fighters called Chetnik had been sowing desolation in my native country, herding people into concentration camps, raping women, burning down churches, and destroying cities. I had just argued that we ought to embrace our enemies as God has embraced us in Christ. And now I'm asked the question, can I embrace even a Chetnik? Sooner or later, this is a question we all have to face. Can I embrace the Chetnik in my life, the person who has done me the most harm? Can I forgive the abuser and the betrayer? Well, we're told Mr. Wolf waited a long time before giving his answer, but finally he said, no, I cannot embrace the Chetnik. But as a follower of Christ, I think I can. What Miroslav Volf acknowledges is that apart from Jesus Christ, we can never hope to obey the commands of our Lord, to love our enemies, and to keep on forgiving those who sin against us. And the disciples knew this. They knew that their only chance to obey Jesus' commands was by faith, by trusting in Christ. But they also realized something else, that they didn't have enough faith. How can we do this, Lord? And so they cry out, increase our faith. And how does Jesus respond to this request? Does he grant them more faith? No. Instead, Jesus tells them, you don't need more faith. You just need a little bit, just a tiny grain of mustard seed faith, and that's enough to do the impossible. And don't get caught up with the mulberry tree getting tossed into the sea. That's not the point. What Jesus is saying is that it is not the amount of faith that you have the power of faith does not lie with the person who has faith. The power of faith rests in the object of that faith. The power of faith rests with Almighty God Himself. And Jesus calls us to step out in faith, to do His will, and then watch as He, Almighty God, 
does what we would consider the impossible. Jesus is trying to help his disciples. He's trying to help all of us to take our eyes off of ourselves. Stop thinking that it's all about you, what you bring to the table, and what you have, what you have to have before you can obey and do the will of God. In some ways, that is a very pharisaical kind of faith, isn't it? Thinking that it's all about me. It all depends upon me, how much faith I have. And Jesus says, no, it's not. You can come to God with faith as small as a tiny mustard seed. But if that faith is in the infinite power of Almighty God, then that little bit of faith is enough to do the impossible, even to embrace the chetnik in your life and forgive and forgive and forgive him. Now, before we close, I want to point out just one more thing. Notice that the power to forgive offers no guarantee that our forgiveness will bring about a change in the sinner. In fact, in this parable, it almost seems quite the opposite. The more forgiveness that is given, the more the sinner continues to sin, even up to seven times in the same day. Now, some may be tempted at this point well, just to throw up our hands and say, well, then what's the use? All my effort, for what? All my sacrifice in forgiving this repeat offender is useless. Why would Jesus call us to do this? Why would he call us to do the impossible task of forgiving the hopeless sinner? What is the use? Well, it's because this impossible task forces us back to the foot of the cross, a place where Pharisees hate to be, but where every single Pharisee absolutely needs to be, because it is at the foot of the cross where we once again witness Jesus Christ doing the impossible task of forgiving me, the hopeless sinner. It's at the foot of the cross where all of my supposed righteous deeds, my forgiving of other people, my sacrifices, my good works, all of my accomplishments, all of these things are exposed to be nothing more than filthy rags when compared to what the Savior of the world, God's only begotten Son, has done for me by bleeding and suffering and dying on the cross so that I, the hopeless sinner, could be saved. It's at the foot of the cross as we are driven there by impossible tasks that we learn what true love is, what true mercy is, and what true forgiveness is. For it is at the foot of the cross that we look up and see what it cost God himself for you and I to be called a child of the king.
Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for your holy word, which continues to help us, Lord, by your spirit, to see you for who you truly are. And it is as we are able to do this, Lord, through your word, that you are sanctifying us in truth. Father, I pray that you would continue to set aside your people. Make us holy, Lord, that we might live holy lives, that we would take sin seriously, that we would also, Lord, be people who have hearts of forgiveness so that, God, even as things would come into our church even to divide us, that, Lord, you would indeed make us one so that the world would believe that God has sent Jesus Christ. Help us with this, Lord. We need you. Help us to have even a little bit of faith in a great and almighty God. We love you so much. We thank you and we praise you for this time and pray all of these things in Jesus' name.